The text for this New Year's Eve service is taken from Genesis 2, the verses 10 through 14. Let's read that once again. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. After the sermon, we will sing together from hymn 73, the first four stanzas, where we are brought back to paradise and to all those who are thirsty that can drink from the water of life, that is from the Lord Jesus, who is the giver of life, and that's what the sermon is about, love congregation of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On this last day of 2012, we may come to you again with the riches of God's word. The text under consideration deals with the time of creation. We are taking back, taken back to the time when God created the heaven and the earth. It was the time before the fall into sin when everything was still unspoiled by sin and by the effects of sin. The text describes a peaceful river flowing through the Garden of Eden and which then divides into four. What, you may say, does this have to do with the celebration of the passing of the old year to the new? Is this text not anything more than just a lesson in geography? For all this text does is to give us an approximate location of the Garden of Eden, where the rivers flowed and through which countries they flowed. There's really not much else of interest here. But is that really true? Well, brothers and sisters, as you take a close look at this text, you will see that in reality it actually has a lot to do with, it has little to do with geography, and that it has everything to do with the celebration of the passing away of the old into the new. For you see, this text has to do with life, with the renewal of life. It has to do with life here on earth and with eternal life. It has to do with a river which is the source of life. It has to do with the gift of life and with the wonderful gift that it is. That's what I will preach to you about. The theme is as follows. The Lord God blesses us with the river of life. And then we will see five things. First, the location of the river, then the source of the river, then the yield of the river, the abundant life from the river, and finally, the true life from the river. On the basis of this text, many commentators, past and present, try to determine the exact location of the Garden of Eden. 
They say that we can determine approximately where the Garden of Eden was located by the rivers that are mentioned in the text and the countries through which they flow. They take note of the fact that the two rivers, the river Euphrates and the river Tigris, are still in the Near East. They even exist today. They admit that we do not know much about the other two rivers, Pishon and the Gihon, but they take various guesses as to where they might be located today. Some think, for example, that these rivers may have been the blue and the wild and the white Nile of today. Others think that these rivers refer to other rivers. Many other suggestions are made. The fact of the matter is, though, that we do not really know anything about these rivers except what it tells us here in the text. They are mentioned nowhere else in the Bible or in antiquity. We are, however, told where these rivers flow to. Pishon, we are told, winds through the entire land of Avila. But that does not bring us any closer either, for we do not know either what those geographical designations refer to. It is possible that, as some suggest, the land of Avila could be located somewhere in Arabia. There seems to be somewhat more certainty about the land of Cush, through which the river Gion flows. It appears to refer to an area of Mesopotamia, northwest of the Persian Gulf, where a people known as the Kassite lived. But that, too, is guesswork. The Lord God does not deem it necessary for us to know more than that. And that is the extent of our geographical knowledge about that time. And therefore, what we have in the text is where we must also leave it. But what about the rivers of the, the Tigris River and the Euphrates River then? We still know where they are today, don't we? Today, these two rivers come together in the modern country of Iraq and then empty into the Persian Gulf. But there's also a problem with respect to these two rivers. For the text tells us that there is first one river, which starts in the Garden of Eden, and then divides into four headwaters, that is, into four rivers. With the modern Euphrates and the Tigris, however, it's the other way around. They start as two rivers and then come together as one. As a matter of fact, that's the way it goes with rivers. They do not start out as one, but they start off separately and then flow together. Many rivers and wadis become one and then empty out into the ocean as one river. With the Garden of Eden, it's the other way around. The water has its origin in the Garden of Eden, and then they divide into four. That is not something you will find anywhere on earth right now. That's not how rivers flow. It's for that reason that many modern commentators also question the accuracy and the historicity of this passage and of the whole creation account. It just does not fit the facts as we know them. They say it's a garbled account. According to them, the authors of the books, book of Genesis probably got some mythological data mixed up and gave us this muddled account. In their way of thinking, we shouldn't read too much into this passage. 
We, however, know that the Bible is reliable. As believers in the truth of the Bible, we must see this text as historical and factual. Time and again, the Bible has disproved scientists. What then is the text telling us? For the Lord God gave us this text with a purpose. Well, let us remember in the first place that after the fall into sin, God had driven the man out and even put angels by the entrance with a flaming sword to keep him out. Genesis 3 verse 24. He did not want man to go back to it or even to be able to find it. The details given in the text give us the affirmation that God was there, but the insoluble geography is a way of the Lord God telling us that the garden now is no longer accessible to man or even locatable. In the second place, we should keep in mind that this text deals with things the way they were before the flood. Modern commentators do not even believe that there was a worldwide flood. But we all know that the flood changed the landscape of the earth to a considerable extent. Rivers changed scores and mountain ranges appeared and disappeared. The flood caused quite an upheaval throughout the whole world. And therefore, those four rivers had a much different course than they do today. And furthermore, at least 5,000 years have gone by since the flood itself. During that time, also the flow of the rivers have changed quite a bit. But as I said, there is much more that should be said about this text. This text is not a lesson in geography. That was not the intent of the Holy Spirit. What then was the intent? Well, the Holy Spirit wants to draw our attention to something much more important. We come to the second point. Can you imagine what kind of garden, the Garden of Eden, paradise, would have been without a river flowing through it? Without such a river, the garden could not even exist. Trees and vegetation need water. Without water, a garden dies. Eventually, all the vegetation would die and turn into a desert, a wasteland. It would not be able to sustain any human or animal life. Men and animals need vegetation and crops and water in order to live. Life is not imaginable without water. And that is the main reason that God gave us this text. He wants to show us in this text that he is the one who gives that life. For he is the one who put that river in the garden. He is the source of life. And that is what described, that is what is described for us in this first part of Genesis 2. Here God describes for us the great three works of God. In verse 7, we read about the first great work of God, namely the creation of man. He is the crown of God's creation. That is also what we confessed this evening when we sang from Psalm 8, stanza 4. You little lower than divine have made him, that over your creation he might reign. The second great work of God is described in the verses 8 and 9 where we read that God planted the garden. And then in the text, in verse 10, we read about the third great work of God when he made the river. Man and vegetation cannot exist without the river, that is, without the water. 
But note well that that river is not restricted to the Garden of Eden. No, it flows through it and beyond. It continues on its course and then divides into four rivers. For you see, God did not intend for man to live only in the Garden of Eden. God wanted eventually the whole earth to be inhabited. And so he opens up the whole world by means of those rivers. Vegetation, life, is made possible outside of the Garden of Eden. He makes the world habitable. All man would have to do in order to open up the world is to follow the river into the land of Avila and Cush. Vegetation, trees, animals, and man could now live there because of the fresh water that the Lord God has provided by means of the rivers. God makes life possible outside of paradise. However, since that time, man has fallen into sin. The world has seen, a, has seen a tremendous upheaval. The landscape has changed. It has become much harder for man to eke out a living. It is also harder to get around. Nevertheless, in spite of the fall into sin, God has made it possible for man to spread out over the whole world. God made it possible for us to live outside of the Garden of Eden. For he sent the rivers, and that makes life possible. And so the point of the text is that God wants you and me to realize that he is the one who gives us that water. He is the one who made it possible that life could flourish on earth. He opened up the world for us so that we could inhabit it even after the fall into sin. From Mesopotamia, man could follow the rivers into Europe and Asia and throughout the rest of the world. He also gives the water to you and to me for, and for us to be part of the opening up of the world. For water is used not only to sustain the life, the life of man and animal and vegetation, water is also used for transportation. He made it possible, for example, that we and our ancestors could immigrate to this part of the world. Did you ever stop to think about that? It is because of the water that we can live here. For some of us, it was even the water that carried us across the ocean into this country. And there are many things that we take for granted. Water is one of them. We turn on the tap nowadays and clear, clean water comes out in abundance. But do you realize what a gift of God that is? When you pray at mealtime, do you ever thank him for the water which he has provided for you? Think about the year which has just come to an end. Was there ever a time that you or I had to worry about lack of water? No, we didn't. God made that possible. But that also gives us a great responsibility. We have to use his resources responsibly. We have to be an example to the world around us in the way that we use God's resources. God is the one who gives us the rivers. He is the one who makes life possible by giving us a place to live where we can find an abundance of food and drink. God teaches us in this text not to take him 
and his gifts for granted. That is the great lesson here. It's not a lesson in geography, but it is a lesson in humility. We are totally dependent on the Lord. Remember that also in the year to come. Think about that as you eat your bread and drink your wine. He is the one who provides it for you. He is not only the creator of life, but also the one who sustains life. And the wonderful thing is that he also makes it possible for us to have a useful part in his creation. He does not just want us to watch him at work, he also puts us to work. And that brings us to the third point, the yield of the river. Many people have some misconceptions about paradise and how man lived there. People have the idea that Adam and Eve were meant to do nothing more than just pluck the fruit from some trees whenever they felt like eating, and that God did not have or did not mean for man to have any work for, for his bread. And people have the same idea about the new paradise, about the life hereafter. They think that then man no longer will have to work. All they have to do is sing praises to God all day long. Even, some even wonder whether or not they would be bored doing that. But praising God is not only with the mouth, but also with the hands. We may praise him with our works. For it is clear from the text that God meant for man also to work in paradise and to have him use his hands and his feet. And not only in paradise in the Garden of Eden, but also after this earthly life when heaven and earth are together again. Take a look what it says in verse 5. We read there at the end of that text that there was no man to work, or as other translations have it, to till the ground. God wanted men to work the soil even before the fall into sin. Also look at what it says in verse 15. The Lord took, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, for trees to grow, tilling, working the ground is not necessary. You till the ground for agriculture so that you can grow grain and other food which do not grow on trees. And you work the ground in order to be able to plant vineyards, etc. You see, Adam and Eve were meant to work in the garden. They were meant to till the ground. They were to work for their bread and their drink. And you and I are also meant to work, not only now, but also in the life hereafter. Work is a blessing from God. Now it is true when we think about work, we think of pain. For work is not always pleasant. It involves sweat and pain. It involves discipline and perseverance. But let us remember that God describes the world here before the fall into sin. Work at that time was only pleasurable. There was no pain associated with it. That came only after the fall into sin. For once man sinned, God cursed the ground. It would bring forth thorns and thistles. Because of man's willful disobedience, life on earth was no longer easy. The world and man no longer were in a harmonious relationship with each other. 
Nevertheless, in spite of all that, God still made it possible to engage in agriculture. The harvest may not be as plentiful and abundant as before the fall into sin, far from it indeed, but nevertheless, God still provides for us. And that is made possible because of what we read in the text. He continues to give us waters, rivers. God is the giver of life. Now here we are at the end of, a, of an old year and looking forward to a new one. We are called to reflect on what has taken place and what is held in store for us in the future. What has indeed taken place? Well, God has once again provided us in this past year. How did that come about? Was this because we ourselves were so industrious and able? Is that why we did as well as we did? Is it because of our own ingenuity, our keen business acumen, or our steady work patterns and all the rest that we have done as well as we did? At least we must have something to do with our own prosperity. Oh, sure, it is true that if you want to prosper, you also have to work, and you have to work hard. But let that not be the first thing that comes to your mind, brothers and sisters, for ultimately you cannot lift a finger without God. He is the one who provides life. He is the one who gives you all the material that you need. And you had better give him thanks for that. Without the water that he provides and without an education and all the life that he gives you, you would be dead. You couldn't exist without him. These are all blessings from the Lord. Ultimately, it's all God's doing. He is the one who prospers you, and he is the one who also did that in this past year. And he promises to do that also in the coming year. For he is the one who directs the rivers of life. Every drop of water, every snowflake comes from his storehouses. He made it possible for you and me to work in spite of the curse which lies on this whole creation. But you had better give him thanks for it. That's not what the world does. It boasts in itself, and therefore God's condemnation rests on them. God's curse is still upon them. But he wants you and me to give him thanks for the gift of life. We have the good custom of praying before and after our meals and before we turn in for the night. But let it be more than just a custom. Be thankful to him from the heart. Do not take his gifts for granted. For he even gives you more than necessary for the sustenance, for the sustenance of daily life. He gives you much more than that. That brings us to the fourth point, the abundant life from the river. Know that in the text there is also mention of aromatic resin, onyx, and gold. If you follow the river, then you will find those substances in the countries that are mentioned. Why did God put this in the text? Some think that he did this so that we would be able to identify and find the countries of Havila and Cush. But remember what I said earlier, this text is not meant as a geography lesson. No, it is meant to show what God has provided for man. Also those things, aromatic resin, 
onyx, and gold are given by the Lord. Why does he give these things? Well, let's look at those substances. Look at the substance identified here as aromatic resin. It is a substance that is pleasing both to the sight and smell. These resins are found in myrrhs, frankincense, balsam, and in certain spices of the plant family. Can you do anything with these resins? Well, not really anything useful. They are, as you might say, luxury items. Same thing could be said about the other two substances, onyx and gold. They're also luxury items. Perhaps in this day and age, some industrial use is found for these materials, and I know that they are, but that certainly was not the case at the time when the Bible was written. You used gold for no other reason than for decoration and onyx for ornamentation. In this text, the Lord teaches us that also these things come from his hand. He does not mind for us to have some luxury items, for he even tells us that the gold of the land is good. It is pure gold. There is nothing wrong with it. God gives us luxury. But as you know, the gold may be good, but we're not. The fallen to sin came in between. Man is now a greedy person. He is not easily satisfied. If there is anything that causes problems in families, it is money, luxury. We're always afraid to get the short end of the stick and we hoard gold, riches, etc., for our security. And we buy things until our payments are to the maximum limit. And there you see how bad man is. Again, none of it is wrong to have gold and other luxury items. God gives these things to us. He means for us to have them. And that is also what the text teaches us here. But we are not to depend on it, to trust in it, to fight over it, and to sell our souls over it, as so many people do. He is not pleased with the gold rushes. He is not pleased with the lotteries, which appeal to man's greed. He is not pleased with the gambling casinos. People engage in these activities out of grief and out of unbelief. For you see, and that is also what we must remember in the coming year, our lives can only be enriched by luxuries if we see the one who has provided them for us. They mean nothing at all without God. Life itself has no meaning without God. Luxuries are a curse rather than a blessing without God. You can do it without luxuries, but not without God. And that brings us to our final point, the life, the true life from the river. We read together from Ezekiel and Revelation. Ezekiel describes the river of the water of life as it is given to him in the vision of the restored temple. And water flows from under the threshold of the Lord's house. Slowly but surely the stream changes into a river as it becomes deeper and deeper. And there is abundance of life on both sides of the river. And as the river flows into the Dead Sea, it changes its salt water into fresh. With an abundance of fish, 
And now that same life-giving river returns in the book of Revelation. Revelation recalls the river which is mentioned in our text. And here especially we see that also eternal life is not possible without the water of life. The water of life is a reference to Christ. Water is used as a symbol for us to show that we cannot do without God. We cannot do without the Lord Jesus Christ. Water refers to blessings from God. In the Near East, there was a chronic, chronic shortage of water. They were constantly reminded of the need for water. Without water, life was not possible. The people had to learn in their earthly life that God is the one who gives them that water, that he is the source. You and I, we also have to learn that. And if we learn that in this life, then we will also experience that in the life hereafter. Revelation shows the abundance of life which the river provides. The trees and its leaves are good for food. They are for the healing of the nations. That means that there we see paradise where the curse has been removed. There are no more illnesses. There are no more disease. There's no more tears. No more death. But there is eternal life. And that is the life that you and I are looking forward to, brothers and sisters. Actually, we have a beginning of that now already. For as it says in John 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Do you believe, brothers and sisters? No doubt your answer is yes. I believe. Well, then show that also in your life. Show that in the way you give thanks to your Heavenly Father, also in the new year. For he has given you the river of life. He has made it possible for you to live where you do and to enjoy the bounty of his creation, to live in the lap of luxury. Give thanks in all your words and works. Show that also in everything you do for a greater abundance than he has already shown you is waiting for you. Live out of that promise and show in your life that you are a child of God. Feel blessed in the work that God has given you to be busy with and feel blessed because of the fruit of your labor. He refreshes and renews your life through his living water. He is our God, the provider of life. Look to him in the year to come and give him thanks always. Amen.